page 263. And uh, if you have a standard Bible, what you're going to want to do is turn to Haggai if you can find it. God bless you if you do. You'll probably get a question tonight with Stump the Pastors that will stump me if you can find Haggai in under two minutes. And uh, also, once you get into Haggai, put a bookmark there, and I want you to turn over to Ezra chapter 1, and that's going to help you uh, to follow along this morning as well. Uh, a number of months ago, I went on a sabbatical. I got to take three weeks away and just spend time studying and praying and recharging and it was interesting. I've never had a real spiritual dream before until this sabbatical. It was sort of cool. Uh, I was a couple days into my sabbatical, and I was about to go away for a prayer retreat. And I had a dream that one of my buddies and mentors in the faith just stopped me and sort of shook my shoulder and just said, why are you pastoring? I was like, well, all right. I, I, I guess I have to give you an answer to that. And I was thinking about it for a minute in my dream, which was sort of cool. And I said, you know what? I... I pastor because I love the moment where God shows up in people's lives. I love the moment where he shows himself so real and he begins to reveal himself to people because God, as Amanda was saying this morning, is always pursuing us, always showing up in our lives, always giving us an opportunity to know him better. I love the moments where God shows up. I had one of these just a few weeks ago with my son, and it was so incredibly rewarding. I've been going through the story with my five-year-old and my two-year-old. My two-year-old likes the pictures. My five-year-old likes the story. And we go through this a uh, couple of nights a week so we could reiterate the stories. And we happen to be on the chapter where Israel is exiled. Just two weeks ago, I talked about how the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were taken into captivity to Babylon, and there were no descendants of, the, of God's people living in, in the Holy Land anymore. A and my five-year-old was devastated by this. I just saw his face. And he shook his head. And I, I, I didn't know what to do in that moment because I, I speak to adults, not to children. And so I said, I said well, well, Cam, I said, what, what do you think is going to happen? And I saw the little wheels turning. I saw the little wheels turning. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, he said, I think God is going to turn their hearts back to him, and then he's going to rescue them. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God who is in heaven. I was like, <laughs> I was like he's five, and he can preach the, this week in the story, right? I just thought that is so cool. That is God. That's not me or my teaching. I just read the storybook for four-year-olds, you know? That's the Lord, and he's revealing himself to a five-year-old. Isn't that cool? God is constantly showing up. Uh, we, have a, we have a testimony that we're getting on file for our Tell the Story testimonies. We haven't done a lot of them this year because we've had the story. But, but I, I, was, I, I listened to one lady in our church say that she didn't know God at all, really. She'd never really served him. And one day, she's just in her dining room, and God's like, yeah, I'm real. You should serve me. <laughs> you know? God is constantly showing up in the lives of people. And we're going to see God show up in a powerful way for his children, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here in chapter 19. But for you and I, we can mentally assent to the idea that God shows up. The question for you and I is, what do we do when he does? That's the question we want to answer today. What do we do when God shows up? Are you on page 263 or Ezra chapter 1? Here we go. 
chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Cyrus has taken over for the Babylonians. The Babylonians are no more. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So then the heads of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the priests, the Levites, Everyone whose, God, whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And their neighbors assisted them with articles of gold, silver, with goods and livestock and valuable gifts in addition to the free will offerings. This was the first GoFundMe campaign in human history right here. Hey, I'm going home. Got to build a temple. Send me with something. Right, here we go. GoFundMe. What a moment for God's people. A destroyed people group, a people group that has been removed from their homeland, completely assimilated into other cultures, now have the opportunity to go home. God has showed up powerfully on behalf of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, they were exiled to Babylon, but no, God was not done with them. Now put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. Imagine that you're under the age of 50 years old. Some of you are like, that's a great thing to imagine, Pastor Matt. So some of you are like, 50? <laughs> Anyhow, imagine you're under the age of 50 years old, and all you've ever heard about your homeland is stories. And, and your parents tell you that, that Yahweh God, I am that I am, Jehovah, existence himself, he's the one true God, but you're in captivity because he's let you be in captivity. But he's the one true God, not the God of the ruling Babylonians, not the God of the ruling Persians. No, our God's the one true God. And one day our God is going to release us from captivity and take us home. Wouldn't you think about that and look at that and think, what a, what a great fairy tale. What a beautiful story for parents to tell their children but I'm pretty sure our God is not the only God, or I'm pretty sure he's not the most powerful God, or else we wouldn't be in captivity here. And you know what? I, I, I don't even know if, if my parents really did ever live in Jerusalem because it sure feels like they've lived here forever. This is what's going on in and around Babylon and in and around the kingdom of Persia. God's people have been removed from their homeland for 50 or 70 years, depending on the date of their exile. And one day, the king decides that they're allowed to go home. What mom and dad said about God was true. What mom and dad knew about God was real, because this is unbelievable that they get to go home. This is an incredible moment. Now, the Bible says that God moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. That is the best explanation for this of any explanation. Because to allow these people to leave their current provinces and go back to provinces that have been repopulated is not a wise political move. 
We're going to see that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Not real good and not real great to have people come and come back after 50 or 70 years and look at the people living there and say, hey, you're squatting on my land. This is not a wise political move on behalf of Cyrus. There is not a reason for Cyrus to want to curry favor with the Jewish people. As you can see, they're not a huge people group within his kingdom or empire anymore. The most simple explanation for why Cyrus is doing this is because, as spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, God intended it to happen, and therefore God moved the heart of the most powerful man on the planet. And God's people get to go home. Why is God doing this? Is he doing this because his people were all of a sudden awesome? No, not really. But we do know that the exile was for a purpose, and that purpose did bring people back to the understanding of we've got to get back to God. We do have to get back to the one true God. We do have to begin serving our God again. And that's what that first generation of exiles did. They began to say, you know what, yes, we live in Babylon, but we're going to serve the one true God. See Daniel, see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from last week. But why is God doing this? Because they became great? No, God's doing this because of his promises. God's made promises. First, a promise about his character. And he made it to Moses on Mount Sinai. He said, I am full of faithfulness and steadfast love, and I will keep my covenant of faithfulness to the thousands of generations. Well, he's made a covenant with Israel, hasn't he? So he's not going to just let them off the hook from being his people forever and ever. In fact, God is showing his steadfast love to Israel by bringing them back, even though Israel had abandoned him not 70 years earlier. But there's other promises that God has made. God made a promise to Abraham, didn't he? A promise that says, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, that certainly hasn't taken place yet. Maybe a hint of it began to happen under the reign of Solomon, but certainly not all the nations of the world have been blessed through Abraham. But of course, then there was the greatest promise, and that's the promise made to David and reiterated in the book of Isaiah, that God is going to send somebody in the line of David who will be Messiah, Savior the one to save the world and rule and to reign forever. God is showing up in the lives of his people for a purpose and because of his promises. And it's a powerful moment, it's a powerful thing for us to see. So what ends up happening? Well, God's people show up. God's people, 42,000 of them, decide to go away from their settled homes and make their way back to Jerusalem. Now, that's both an awesome and a sad thing altogether, isn't it? The awesome thing is that 42,000 people got up and moved because God showed up. 42,000 people became missionaries to Jerusalem because God showed up. But it's also sort of sad, too, because this is the remnant of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 42,000. 600,000 males came out of Egypt. 42,000 men, women, and children come out of Babylon. But remember, God's got a greater purpose. And think about this. Today, under God's Son, there are 2.2 billion people who call I am that I am God. 
So God can use a remnant to do some pretty incredible things. So these people begin to show up by going where God tells them to go. This is an important thing to do when God shows up in our lives. You're doing it today. You have made the decision to come to church this morning, to go where God has told you to go. There are many people right now that are sipping their second cup of coffee. I'd say they're on their back patio, but it's June in Ohio, so naturally it's freezing. There are many people today who are freezing, playing golf at this, at this exact moment, suffering for Jesus on a golf course, right? No, there are many people who have not chosen to be here this morning, but you have. You're, in, in essence, going where God has told you to go. And there's going to be other times in your life, if God continues to show up, that you're going to step out and go to places where God told you to go that might just be a little bit weird to the people around you, might just be a little bit off. Maybe it's to the mission field. Maybe it's to the prison. Maybe it's to, to a place in, in a community that nobody else is going, but you may just go where God tells you to go. It's a good sign that God has showed up and that you're showing up in return. The second thing that the exiles do is they give with joy. The Bible records that they took in 61,000 derricks of gold when they get back to Jerusalem. And the 61,000 derricks of gold, which was the Persian gold piece, 61,000 derricks of gold was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds of gold. And when they arrive in Jerusalem from their long journey, instead of hoarding and taking their stuff in and going, hey, we haven't planted any crops yet. Hey, we haven't built any houses yet. Hey, we haven't got any, any uh, fodder for our animals yet. They say, all right, we're here to rebuild the temple, so we're going to give with joy towards it. That's what takes place when they get home. It's an incredible show of their faith in God. And oftentimes when our faith in God begins to work itself out, it, re it reveals itself in giving with joy towards God's work. It happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the new Christians have, have discovered that Jesus Christ has died for their sins and risen again and is, is the Lord of all. And, and there's thousands of them, and they don't know what to do with themselves, so they just start selling their possessions and selling their land and laying it at the disciples' feet. And it wasn't so that the disciples could get their jet. What they were doing was saying that we are going to give towards the work of God's ministry now, and we believe that what's taking place here in Jerusalem is going to go to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, and we need to fund this thing. And so they do. And so you're sitting here today because people gave with joy and sustained the early church. You see, that's a sign that God has shown up and then you're showing up in return. Let's read what happens next on page 264, Ezra chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. It says this, Then Joshua, son of Josadak. Now, Joshua is a descendant of Aaron. He's in the priestly line. And his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shelatiel. Now, Zerubbabel is the governor, the new governor of Jerusalem, and Zerubbabel is a direct descendant of David. Both David and Zerubbabel our ancestors of Jesus Christ. And their associates, they began to build the altar of God, the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in according with what's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
And despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundations. They sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. And then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed festivals as the Lord, as well as those who brought freewill offerings to the Lord. And on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation for the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. What are they doing? Well, they're doing something that's completely foreign to us. Uh, we do have a fire pit on the back of the property, but we don't offer any burnt offerings on it. That's not our, that's not our deal. And, and we don't make any sacrifices anymore to God because, as we talked about this morning already, God has made a once-and-for-all sacrifice for us. But what were they doing? Well, they were worshiping God. You see, an altar is a place of worship. That's why we call this area right here where, where sometimes we call you at the end to pray and to commit something to God, we call this the altar. It's a place to worship and meet with God. And in the way that God had prescribed, a way to, to worship him and honor him in the Old Testament was to offer sacrifices, was to say, God, we recognize that we don't have a right to a relationship with you, that there is nothing special or awesome about us, but everything that we have has been given by you. And so once in a while, we give something back to show you that we believe in you and we trust you. And a burnt offering was just that. You didn't save any of the burnt offering. You burnt up the whole thing to say, God, we trust you for our future because you proved yourself in our past. And therefore, we bring something and we sacrifice it as an act of worship. And this isn't a meal for us. It's certainly not a meal for you. All this is is a sign that we believe that we have a relationship with you that we don't deserve. And we are blessed because of it. But that's not all they do. They make offerings in accordance with the Feast of Tabernacles, one of their main holidays. We have Christmas and Easter. The Jews had Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, remembering the Lord's goodness from the past in their lives. But it also says that they brought free will offerings, and to me, this is the most special thing. Because the free will offerings came from the normal, everyday people, folks like you and me. And what you would do is you would bring your lamb to the altar, and it would be sacrificed. And some of the portions would be burned in honor of the Lord. And some of the portions would be given to the priests, because the priests didn't have ownership of much. But then the rest of the portion was given to you and your family. And when the free will offering was prescribed by God, he said, bring it with some bread, bring it with some wine, bring it with some fruit, and then sit down and eat with me. A symbolic meal with the Lord. A free will offering. The other thing it can be called is a peace offering. Because you're going to spend some time with God near his altar. We do that today, don't we, when we take communion. In a symbolic way, we take a meal with our Lord. And we give a free will offering of worship and praise to the Lord through communion, much the way the Jews of old did through their free will offerings. The Jews were worshiping with zeal. They don't have a temple yet. They don't have houses yet. They don't got much going for them. But they build an altar so they can worship God. And this is what takes place in our life when God shows up. We begin to go where he goes. We begin to give with joy, and we begin to worship with zeal. We begin to thank him for the things in our past and the faithfulness that he's given to us, and we begin to want to enjoy our present relationship with him. And that's what we do each and every Sunday morning where we, when we start with what we call worship. 
we're remembering what he has done in the past, we're trusting him with our future, and we're desiring to spend time in his presence. We're altering. We're altering every time we come into this place. And then finally, we see in page 265, verses 3 through 10, they begin to put in some sweat equity. Then the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests with their vestments and trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, and they pres- as prescribed by King David of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord was laid. So then they begin the work that God has called them to. So these are four signs, four signals that God has moved, God has shown himself, God has proved himself in the lives of people. People return and reciprocate by going where God tells them to go, by giving with joy, by worshiping with zeal, and then serving with some sweat. They put in some sweat equity because they begin themselves to rebuild this temple. They set to work on it. There was a great, big, better force of people when Solomon built this temple. There was a lot more money, a lot more resources, and a lot more conscripted labor. But these people went back to Jerusalem to build it themselves. They began to serve God with their sweat, with their time, with their energy, with their effort. It's a powerful sign. But as is often the case, then a problem arises. Look at chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, or the bottom of page 265. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. So they bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so the temple building stopped. Can you imagine? Imagine this for a minute. You have left your home. You have packed up everything you own. You have gone and made this great journey to Jerusalem. You have begun by by making this journey, by giving towards this effort, by worshiping God with gladness, and you begin to serve and build this temple. But then opposition comes, and you stop. And you stop. Now, you say, Pastor Matt, what are you going to do? Are you going to talk about just the fallenness of these people, how the backsliding of these people? No, that's not what I'm going to talk about today because I think that there's a greater story in what God does when he shows up, and, it, and it's this. He knows that human beings have a problem with faithfulness. God knows we have a problem with completing the tasks he set out for us. He knows that. It doesn't catch him by surprise. He's not overwhelmed by it. He's not not, uh, uh, caught off guard by it. God knows it's hard for us to operate in faithfulness. It says that, that they stopped working on the temple all the way to the reign of King Darius. Well, there was a king in between Cyrus and Darius. His name was Cambyses. 16 years, they did nothing. Could you imagine if I were to look at you today and say, hey, Glad you're all here. This has been a really great day in the house of God. I'll see you in 16 years. 
That, that's sort of what happens. They, they, they lose their, their sense of what they're doing as a community because they face this opposition and things get tough. It's tough to be faithful when faithfulness is called for. It's tough to complete God's work when things are arrayed against us. But we do have opposition sometimes, don't we? We do have what the Bible calls an enemy of our souls who would hope to thwart all of God's plans in our life. We do have this yucky thing called a sin nature that keeps us from completing tasks for God sometimes because we're too busy doing silly and stupid things. And we do sometimes let the opposition stop us and then just begin to do things our own way because life gets busy. Life gets tough. Life gets hard. Sometimes very serious things like illness happen, or, or in their case, something very serious happens. They have other regional governors trying to thwart their plans. It's a serious threat to the work. But instead of exploring every option to continue to do the work of God, they retreat. They retreat. But as I mentioned, God is not surprised by this. It doesn't catch him off guard. God's already got prophets in the work to send to encourage them towards faithfulness. Their names were Haggai and Zechariah. And I just want to read some of the words of Haggai this morning because they give us a great clue as to what the final thing to do is when God shows up. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 2 through 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is page 266 in the story. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Remember, we're 16 years out now. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm, and you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Haggai, well, calls him out. Haggai goes ahead and begins to ask some questions of them. Haggai begins to call into question what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it starts with this question of what's going on right now because you say it's not time to build the Lord's house. And it brings them to this point of God resetting their priorities. That's what the message from Haggai and Zechariah was intended to do. It was intended to reset their priorities because God knows that they struggle with faithfulness. So God gives this message through Haggai. It's not yet time to build the temple. What are you talking about? What are you doing here? What did you leave your houses for 15, 16 years ago? What did you travel all this way for? What did you give so much of your money toward? Where, why were you worshiping in front of that altar like that? Why did you lay the foundation for that temple if you weren't going to complete it? What are you here for? And Haggai is calling to mind if you read the rest of the chapter. You are here to build God's temple. You are here to do God's work. God has placed you here for such a time as this to do what God has placed you here to do. And it's true of us today. What are you here for? Whether you live in Stowe or Akron or Cuyahoga Falls or Talmadge or Macedonia or Streetsboro, what are you here for today? The answer is the same. God has placed you here for such a time as this, 
for his purposes to do a work which he has ordained for you to do. Why is he sending these students out to these various places? He is sending these students out today to these various places because he has a work for them to do for such a time as this that they're supposed to do that he's going to do through them. The answer for God's people is all the same. What are you doing? Why are you here? I am here to do what God has sent me here to do. That's the answer. But he asked a second question. Is the time right now for you to be living in paneled houses while God's house lies ruin? Lies ruined? He says, what are you doing? He's calling them out. And they're saying, well, we're pretty much pursuing the comforts of life. We pretty much backtracked from what God's called us to do and we are pursuing our own ends. And Haggai says, really? You who have such a strong calling, you who have such a strong background, you whom God has given so much, you're looking towards the comforts of life rather than to do the work that God has ordained for you. Why? Why would you do that? God has a purpose for your life. Don't back away from it. Don't let opposition stop you from it. Move forward in the name of the Lord. And then Haggai asks one more question. He says, how's it going? How's doing it your way working for you? How's it going? I love Haggai. What a great prophet. I think it's only three chapters too, so easy read. What a great prophet. How's it going? Are you ever really satisfied with what you're doing? And yes, there's some literal and some figurative to this, right? The literal is they're not experiencing great blessing there in Judah. They're not getting rich as they might want to. But there's figurative here, too. Think about that. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. I mean, they're a hop, skip, and a jump from the desert, for heaven's sakes. There's some figurative here, too. They don't all have holes in their purses, right? But what's Haggai saying? He's saying, how is going, doing life your way working? Are you ever really satisfied? Are you ever really fulfilled doing it that way? Of course the answer is no. It always feels like the purse has a hole in it. Always feels like you can't get warm. Always feels like you can't get your full fill of this life. That's what the created thing does. It never gives you your fill because there is a hole in each one of our lives that is only to be filled by God's purpose and plan for our lives. And it's the only thing that can fulfill us. It's the only thing that can satiate our need for more and better and greater is when the more and better and greater is the kingdom of God. It's the only thing that can fulfill us. And when God resets your priorities, what's going to happen is all of a sudden his priorities are going to become your priorities after the opposition. After things get tough. Because it's not always easy to follow God when he shows up. There are plenty of people who God shows up in their life and they don't leave Babylon, right? But you're here this morning because in some way you've left Babylon already and you've made your way towards God's kingdom. But I promise you if opposition has not come, it will. And when that opposition comes, it's going to test your faithfulness. And then the question is going to be, are you going to sit back and try to live this life out comfortably? Or are you going to allow God and his priorities to win out? And allow him to reorder the loves of your heart? And the truth is, there's plenty of us sitting here today 
who have retreated just a bit, and we are happy to live in our paneled houses, but we're not fulfilled. Our lack of faithfulness has left us unfulfilled. And God wants to ask the question of you today, how is it going? Because I have placed you here. I do have a purpose for you. And if you want to know what it is, if you don't remember, I'll tell you. Because God loves to reset our priorities. And here's the beauty of what God does. He resets our priorities to be his priorities. We get to work something in and through something that lasts for eternity. And we get to be fulfilled. That's how good God is. We think that if we enjoy or go about his priorities, that somehow we're going to lose ourselves. Well, Jesus says, what profit is a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? You can gain everything this world has to offer, but it's God and his purposes that will leave you fulfilled. You know, Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua and their associates, they rebuild that temple because one day Jesus Christ is coming. And he's going to walk in the very spot where they're building. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to come. And he's going to walk in the very spot where we're building. Are you building a house of God's priorities or a house of your own making. Be blessed. Be encouraged today that you have heard from God, that he has proved himself to you and you are moving towards him. But be challenged today to really ask if you're working through the opposition operating in faithfulness and working through God's priorities for you. Because one day, Jesus is coming and he's going to look at what we've built with the lives that he's given. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning recognizing that you are so patient and so loving and so good that even when our priorities are all messed up, you send your word to reset them. Even when we get away from what you have for us, you just come back in in your love and say, I've got you. Get back on track. I have a work for you to do. You are so good that way. But we must be willing. We must be willing to allow you to reset our priorities when we're not walking in faithfulness. God, I want you to reset my priorities because I know when you do, I'm fulfilled. And I know when I don't allow you to, I just can't get warm. So God, for just a few minutes, reset our priorities in this place. So the holes in our bag, clothe us from on high. 
meet our every need and fulfill us according to your word. Just take a few minutes in this place as we close to say, God, where are my priorities, not your priorities? What would you like to reset? And if you're willing, offer it to him today. Offer it to him. There's a benefit to God's kingdom. There's a benefit to you. Let's make this place a house of prayer for just a few moments.